0: Brandon Barrett, I'd like to welcome any of you that are here visiting. We're we're glad that you're with us this morning. Thanks for coming and being here with us today. You find us in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapters 1 through 11. The title of the series is In the Beginning, because these first number of chapters in Genesis, we see so much of the start of things, literally the start, the beginning of the Bible, but even more than that, the start, the beginning of our story as well. As God addresses for us where everything came from, why it matters, who He is, who we were created to be, what it means to be in relationship with Him. We see all of that beginning here in Genesis. And if you've been here or if you're familiar with the first two chapters of Genesis, you're going to see that, um, that it brings up a question for us. Because in the first couple chapters of Genesis, you see God creating everything in it. The refrain day in and day out is, and it was good, it was good, it was good. Everything God creates, beautiful. And good, straight from the hand of its creator, we get into chapter two, and it narrative focuses in on God specifically on God's creation of man and woman, and the beauty that He gave us, of relationship with himself and relationship with each other, created good. But if you get into the, the chapter two, there is a looming question: Why doesn't my world look like that? Maybe it's, why doesn't my marriage look like that, or my relationship with other people? Why doesn't my work seem good? Why, doesn't, why don't I look around and see God's goodness poured out everywhere the way Genesis 1 and 2 says that they are? Well, Genesis 3 answers that question for us. So let's pray, and then we'll come to the text. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, as always, people in need of your word speaking to us. That you might show us what is true about our world and about ourselves, and most importantly, about you. That you might tell us what is good and true and right. That you might show us, even here in Genesis 3, what has gone so terribly wrong. And that you might point us to what you have done to come and fix the mess we find ourselves in. We look to you. Speak to us now by the power of your Spirit. And to the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her. He ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent, serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You see, chapter 3 of Genesis tells us what has gone so terribly wrong. And it begins the story of the Bible that tells us what God is doing about it. Okay, so we see the story here in Genesis 3 in three acts. First, act 1, the fall. Act 2, the curse. And act 3, the promise. First, Act 1, the fall. we see this in verses 1 through 7. chapter opens up abruptly with, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Okay, what in the world is going on? I mean, it it opens up talking about this serpent, but then uh, he starts talking, right? What's going on? Uh, You know, once upon a time in a land far, far away, snakes could talk. Well, you see, the thing about it is, Eden, as it's presented to us, it's not Narnia, okay? You don't have Mr. Beaver going out and talking to people. You really don't. It'd be easy to read this and think, well, I guess in the garden, you know, snakes talk. Uh, there are no talking animals in Genesis. And, you know, for all their naivete and their ancient uh, selves, the original readers of this text, the original hearers of this would have known, you know what, in our world, snakes don't talk, what is going on here? Something is going on. Something serious and something different than Adam and Eve have experienced anywhere else. Something is speaking and is speaking through a serpent here. As one commentator says, you know, we're, we, don't, we don't see the identity. We, the identity of this serpent is not named in Genesis 3. We're going to see how the Bible fleshes this out. But as one commentator says, even here, even now in these first words, we see that there is some sort of dark power at work. Because there is a speaker in the garden other than God who would speak to these people and tell them something that comes ultimately we'll see in direct contradiction to what God says. Who is speaking? Here we simply see a dark power as the Bible unfolds. We see much more clearly why we look back now at this text and probably without thinking of it we look and we say Satan was here in the garden. In Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus' baptism, he's taken out into the desert and he is tempted by Satan. And where Adam and Eve fail, he succeeds. But same tempter. John chapter 8, when Jesus is speaking to some of the religious authorities who have fallen far from God, he says this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth. There's no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What does he say? He was a murderer in the beginning. Looking back to Genesis chapter 3. And then we see this... Picture in the highly pictorial book of Revelation, chapter 12, this picture of God finally defeating His enemies and His greatest enemies. It says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, is at work here in Genesis chapter 3. This is no Aesop's fable. Rather, we have Satan, the father of lies, talking through a serpent, using it to invade Eden and to tempt Eve and Adam, God's people. Okay, so it opens up, and here we see the tempter who steps into the garden. Then we see something of the power of the temptation. You notice how terse this whole account is. It goes straight to the heart of what happens. Satan appears in the form of this serpent, and he begins to speak to the woman. And he has two speeches. First speech, we see of Satan that he is the craftiest of animals, and he speaks to her and says this, did God actually say? Did God actually say? Now, two things are going on here. One is that He, if you go back into chapter two and then later in chapter three, you'll see the serpent is changing the level of discourse here. Okay, if you go back in chapter two, every time God is referred to, He's called the Lord God. It's so when you look in your Bibles and you see Lord in capital letters. It is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. It was the personal name of God. The covenant name of God. The name of God by which he came to his people and said, not only am I God who's out there, I am your God. I am the God who is for you. And that's what he's referred to all the way through chapter 2. And then in this stark contrast, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, Satan appears, the serpent appears, and he said, did God, generic term, You know, the generic creator God, not your covenant God. Not, he doesn't want Adam and Eve to think, remember God, the one who loves you? Remember God, the one who's made promises to you? Remember God, the one who's brought you into relationship? He says, no, God, you know, God who's out there. Did he really say that? Did he really say you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? Really? Really? And you get just that hint, as commentators point out here, of just that hint of disdain. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor, puts it this way. He says, all the problems in the garden begin with a sneer. The sneer of the serpent. Did God really say that to you? And he begins to get under the skin of Eve as he brings her this deadly argument. He suggests in the content of what he says that God is unbelievably restrictive. Has he really put off-limit all the trees in the garden? Well, Eve responds. She comes in and responds to this first question by the serpent. She says in verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. In other words, no, he didn't say we can't eat of any of the trees. He left it wide open for us. Verse 3, But God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, a couple of things are going on here. One, chapter two, we hear about the Lord God. The serpent comes in and he says, God. And Eve responds with, God, I'll take your term for God. I'll put my promise-keeping, people-loving God on the side, and I'll, I'll take it as it comes to me from your lips. Well, God didn't say that. I mean, He gave us the trees of the garden. But there is this one tree in the middle of the garden that we're not supposed to eat. True enough. It's exactly what the Bible tells us in the first couple chapters of Genesis. But then she says, nor may we touch it. God never said that. He said, don't eat it. But He didn't say anything about touching it. You see what Eve is doing here subtly. She's already taking a step towards the tempter. Who's trying to make God so restrictive. And she's adding on just the barest hint of restriction herself. God not only did he say, don't eat it, he also told us we can't even touch it, which was not true. Well, Satan, the serpent, comes back in with his second speech. You will not surely die. Now he comes and shows his cards directly contradicting God's words. If you go back to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it's where God says puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. He says, do not eat of it. The day in which you eat of it, you will die. And Satan says, you will not surely die. He directly contradicts God's word, his truthfulness. And then he goes on to bring into question God's goodness. He says, God knows that the day you take of it, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, don't you see... Don't you see? God is holding back on you. You're not going to die. You're going to be like Him. And that's the last thing He wants. All in this fruit, Eve. Right here. And we look back to this chapter and maybe think, you know, what's the big deal? It's a piece of fruit, right? It's a piece of fruit. That everything goes wrong here in this chapter for them and for everyone since then because of a piece of fruit. I mean, come on. It's not like God had said to Adam and Eve, the one thing you're not supposed to do is just don't murder. He says, don't take that fruit over there and don't take a bite. But you see, that's really the point. It wasn't this, uh, what we would consider an outrageous sin. It's not something like murder. What does he say? I'm going to take something small that is in and of itself inconsequential. and I'm going to put the weight of a moral choice on this. Are you willing to obey me in the very smallest of things? when i put you in paradise in the midst of all the plenty you could imagine can you obey me here when there's just one thing when there's just one thing that i tell you you may not take it's a piece of fruit but it is so much more what's at stake here is the truthfulness of god is he a god who speaks truth to us can we and further can we trust him is he trustworthy does he really want what's best for us? Or as the serpent is suggesting, as Eve begins to buy in, is he holding out on us? Is there more for us that God could give us but won't? God says, I am your God. I tell the truth. You can trust me. I love you. I want what's best for you. The best for you is the only thing I want. And the serpent comes in and says, no. He's holding out. And this lies at the heart of all temptation and all sin for us too. That's the second part of his his speech, and that's all the serpent says. All this that comes out of this speech, three sentences long. That's all he has to say. And Eve owns it. She's been faced with this choice: whose voice will I listen to? Who will I trust? Who is speaking words of truth to me? Who will I follow? she thinks back to what god has told her and she turns away from it verse 6 it says this to us so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eye that the and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate she takes her eyes off the goodness of God, the bounty of all that he has given her in the garden. And she questions the truthfulness of what he said. She disbelieves the trustworthiness of God. She locks her eyes, as we so often do, not on the goodness and bounty of God, what God has given us, but on the one thing that he has said, you, you can't take this. You can't have this. Will you follow me in this? Eve owns the temptation that comes her way. She steps into it. And we come to own it as well. This really is the story of why the world is trapped in sin. This is a story of why things went wrong. This is a story of where there was a great break in creation and everything changed after that. Adam and Eve standing in our place, making a choice ultimately for us, representing us. And when they fell, we fell too. It's really about that. But it is also something of a paradigm of what we face ourselves when we face temptation. We, in that sense, relive this every day ourselves. We, too, are people who question God's goodness to us. If God were really good, would He allow that in my life? If God were really good, why won't He give me this thing over here? It seems like such a small thing, yet it would it would finally make it complete for me. We question God's trustworthiness. Can we really rest on Him? Can we know that He has our back? Can we know that He cares about our good? Can we know that He is not only God, but our God? Can we know that He loves us? It's the heart of all our temptations as well. Well, as we read, Eve falls. She takes the fruit and she eats. She gives it to Adam, interestingly, who was with her. Saying nothing. Doing nothing. Not defending her, not defending the garden. Passively standing there. She gives it to Adam and he eats as well. We commonly call this the fall, maybe an even more helpful term. Uh, R.C. Sproul uses this term. He calls it cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. It's not just a piece of fruit. It is all of mankind turned away from their God, going their own way. You know the very famous words, Neil Armstrong when he steps on the moon, right? One small step for man, one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Here we have one very small bite with drastic consequences for everyone who would follow. It says that Eve was... Deceived. And Adam stands there letting it happen. And then what happens? The immediate results of this. It says that their eyes were opened, verse seven, and they knew that they were naked. Stark contrast to the way chapter two ends, just a few verses ahead, where they, and all the marital bliss they are given in paradise, they stand there naked and unashamed, nothing breaking relationship with them, no shame, no guilt, no fear. All of that reversed in a moment. When now, as a consequence of their turning away from God, their lives are broken in relationship to God and in relationship to each other. Now, for the first time, the entrance of shame and guilt and fear. So what do they do? Verse 7. They hide from each other. They go and stitch together fig leaves to cover themselves. Verse 8. Even as they hide from each other, they hide from God. They hear the sound of Him walking in the garden. It says they hide themselves among the trees. God, the one whose voice brought them into existence, the one who upholds their every breath, the one who would walk with them in His good creation. Now they flee from that good voice. They run from Him for the first time. He comes looking for them. And and just in a scene filled with um, just incredible power. Think for a moment about your worst day or one of them. You know what it's like when you have done something and you realized I have ruined everything. Or when something has been done to you, you know that feeling when the anxiety and the fear and the guilt well up. You can feel it in the pit of your stomach and it feels like the bottom is dropping out of your world. You know that feeling? That's what's going on here. Because the bottom has dropped out of the floor of their world. Everything broken. They hear the sound of God's voice. And you hear him in verse 9. Lord God called to the man. He said to him, Where are you? God is not looking for information here. He's not trying to track them down. Adam and Eve, did I lose them? The other side of the garden. He knows where they are, and he knows what has happened, and he comes for them. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, a lot of things could happen at this very moment. Oh, Lord, my God, I have. Forgive me. A lot of things could have happened. One way, it's an invitation by God, even. Adam, fess up. Tell the truth. What's happened? But what do we see immediately? Finger pointing and ugliness. He says, instead, the man says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Do you hear it? The woman that you gave to me, she gave it to me. And and he turns to the woman, what have you done? The serpent. He deceived me. And I immediately, what do we see? Blame shifting. Breakdown in relationship, not only with them and God, but with each other. You see the first marital breakdown right here. It was her. It was him. It's their fault. As they continue, they're running. Act 2, the curse. It begins with a curse on the serpent. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But, but he then goes to a pronouncement on Eve. He tells her a couple things. He says that your pain in childbirth is going to be greatly increased. Remember God said to Adam and Eve, he said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That the uh, That the fulfilling that the multiplying, that the offspring was meant to be part of the gift to Adam and Eve. And it's a gift that is uniquely carried through the woman as she is the one who gives birth. And he says, this thing that is so central to my calling to humanity, he says, this is this is going to become way more painful. I'm going to bring frustration and hardship right at the very center of what I have called you, Eve, to do. And then it goes on and says, the second part of that, he says... Um, in the second half of verse 16, he says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Another way to translate that would be, Your desire shall be against your husband. The only other place we see a phrase like this, there two, well, are two other places, most immediately right after this in chapter 4, we'll get there next week, when um, God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. You must rule o- rule over it. What's he saying? Sin is out to get you. It's out to destroy you. When she said, when it says here that your desire shall be for your husband, it's saying that there is now a strife that has entered into human relationships. That there will be a striving. There will be a desire for control. There will be a pull between the two. And he says, because of that, the husband will turn to you and he will rule over you. What happened to the beautiful harmony Two people created to be in relationship with each other. The two made one flesh, naked and unashamed. It says now this is going to be a relationship that's marked by strife and sometimes oppression and suffering. That's what he tells Eve. And then he goes on to Adam. He pronounces a curse on the ground. He says it's not going to yield for you the way it used to. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. You're going to have to work hard to eke out a living from this earth so that you will be fed. Whereas Eden bountifully just provided for Adam's need as a gardener who tended the garden, he will now do the hard work of trying to keep his family alive with an earth that seems like it has turned its back on him as well. He says, you will work hard until you finally die. He says, you were created of dust and to dust you will return. Then moving down a few verses, we see them expelled from the garden. God pushes them out. He sends them away. I was thinking this week of, if you uh, remember the, that picture of Michelangelo on the top of the Sistine Chapel, on the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel of the expulsion from Eden, you've got uh, the cherubim, the angel that's mentioned here with the sword at Adam's neck as he is being forcibly pushed out of the garden into a land away from the presence of God. Now, God had said, the day you take this fruit, you will die. And Satan says, you will not surely die. Who was right? Adam and Eve, they're still living and breathing. I mean, they get kicked out of the garden. Okay, They've got a new, they've got a forced relocation. But they're still alive. The way the story comes to us Eden was the place of God's presence. God was there. And when he kicks them out of Eden, that day they die. Spiritually die. Cut off. From their God, the worst kind of death and one that one day ultimately will spin out an actual physical death. To dust you will return. But from that very day, a break in their relationship with God. Death that goes to the very core. It happens there. And that's what this picture of being kicked out of Eden, what really lies behind it. People under a curse, the same life we find ourselves in now. It's not the end of the story. There's an act three, and it's the promise. Now, put yourself in God's shoes just for a minute. You are the creator. You're the one who makes the world. You are the one who makes people in your image to be in relationship with you. And then this happens. What would you do? I mean, really? Game over. Right? This is it. We're done. When I was a kid, and uh, I can remember in elementary school, in art class, we used to, we used to make a lot of uh, clay statues. Remember doing this as a kid? and Make a clay statue. What happens if your clay statue just, it just doesn't look right? It just doesn't turn out the way you want it? What do you do? <laughs> do over. We'll start over. Right? God doesn't do that. Now, maybe, just you can imagine this, maybe things go wrong. But What if things went wrong on the first day? All God's done at that point is created light and dark didn't turn out the way I wanted. Okay, maybe we can start over here. Day two, he separates the waters. Day three, he starts to to make dry land. Could you stop then? Maybe. He starts to make animals and fish and birds. The stakes are getting higher. Could you stop then? Start over? Maybe. But what happens on day six? He creates man and woman in his image. He says, I'm putting my stamp on them that they might be in relationship with me. And you see, the stakes have become so much higher. What's he going to do now? He would be fully justified in doing exactly what we do with the clay and throwing it all away, but he is unwilling to. He won't do it. He won't let them go. Instead, he pursues them. We see it when he steps in the garden and says, where are you, what have you done, inviting repentance even there. We see it even right above in this section on the curse. We call it the curse, but if you notice, if you read carefully... The only things that receive the direct word of curse are two things. The serpent, which we're getting to, and the ground. Adam and Eve are not said to be cursed. God has not utterly and finally cut them off. He is leaving a door open. Well, we do, we get to the curse on the serpent. Let's look back at that, where we see the promise beginning to be made clear. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. First thing he says, you shall eat dust. Okay, they didn't think serpents really ate dirt. It was a picture even in the Bible of utter humiliation and defeat. One we used to. It will eat dust. He says he will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And he comes to this, he says, you shall, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his, his heel. That is not just a picture of why almost everybody and almost every culture on the earth doesn't like snakes. We don't, right? It's not why you want to kill him when you see him in your yard. It's not why my neighbor knocked on my door about two weeks ago and said, there's a snake in my yard, come kill it. That's not, that's not what's going on here. Or certainly not only that. We couldn't find it, it got away. <laughs> just as this serpent, remember, remember verse 1, the serpent spoke. This is, no, this is not just a snake. There is something more going on here than that. And in this, he shall bruise your head. You shall uh, And you shall bruise his heels. Something more is going on here as well. There is a promise being given here. When he looks at the serpent and he says, Your days are numbered. There's going to be enmity, enmity between you and between the offspring of these people I have created. You are going to strike their heel. But one day, your head is going to be crushed. And it will be over. He says he's, he even he even makes it singular right there. Right, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A promise of one that we see the expectation beginning here and growing throughout the Old Testament as we come to the New Testament of how is this finally going to be solved? How is the head of the serpent finally going to be crushed? How is the curse finally going to be lifted? How are we as God's people ever finally going to be brought into his presence? We see it spill out in the rest of the Old Testament as God gives them the gracious gift of the sacrificial system to point them to their need for some sort of sacrifice that would bring forgiveness. and He draws them back into their promise, but it Sacrifice is made again and again and again, and it never seems to get all the way there. When is this war going to be over? When is the champion that we really need going to come? When is the serpent not only going to be bruised, but finally ground under our heel? Coming come to the New Testament and we find that it has happened in Jesus. God says, I will send a rescuer. I will send a deliverer. I will send a champion. One who not only will be struck by Satan, Good Friday, But he will crush his head Easter morning when Jesus rises from the dead, defeats death, never to die again. You see, the story that begins here in Genesis 3 finds its full culmination in Jesus. Jesus comes to be the one we need to bring this kind of restoration from this kind of fall that affects all of us. He comes, brings forgiveness and healing through his shed blood, through his body broken on a tree. And we taste that even now. If you're in a relationship with Jesus, you taste that even now. His forgiveness poured out on you today. And we look ahead to the day. One day when he comes back, we get back to Revelation 12, which we read already. And it says, one day that ancient serpent will be thrown down for good. His back has been broken even now at the cross. And one day he will be thrown into the pit. He says, it will be fully and finally over. God has won the victory in principle in Jesus. And he's coming to do the mop-up operation. He's coming back. He is coming back for us, His people. Where is the answer to Genesis 3? We find it in Jesus. When Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, from the presence of God, remember when guards the way, keeps them from getting back into the garden, it says there's a cherubim. This mighty warrior of an angel with a sword, a deadly sword that will not let them cross back into the presence of God. Later in the Old Testament, God calls his people out of Egypt. He, he instructs them to build a tabernacle, big tent, with a series of inner tents. And At the very heart of that tent was the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments and some other artifacts were placed. And on the top of that ark were the statues of two cherubim top of the ark, guarding the presence of God. You may not come near. And that ark is what ends up in the temple in Jerusalem, in the very center of the temple, in a room called the Holy of Holies. A room in a place so sacred that only one person is able to go there, and that only one day a year, the high priest as he comes to bring the blood of the offering for sins of the people into the Holy of Holies. And it's separated from the rest of the temple by a thick curtain So that no one can see in there. So that no one can enter in there. To that room that symbolizes God's presence. Guarded by the cherubim. Matthew tells us. that As Jesus hangs on the cross. And as he dies. That the curtain in the temple. The Holy of Holies. Is ripped. Right down the middle. Top to bottom. Opened up. Cherubim, drop their sword. So we are no longer excluded, but brought back in. Where does Genesis 3 take us? It takes us to Jesus. It takes us straight to Him. So the Gospel comes and speaks words to us as well. Words like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it brings up these questions for us. Is God telling the truth? Will He make good on His promises? Is He truthful? Is He trustworthy? Is it possible that God could be this good to us? This good beyond our wildest imagination that in forgiving our very real sin giving good to us in Jesus, His Son, that we might actually become sons of God ourselves, that we might become adopted into His family. Is it possible that God is that good? Is it possible that somehow, in all the darkness of Genesis 3, that God takes that and He redeems it? And He makes something that's maybe even more beautiful because of how dark it began. He gives us a beautiful picture in the gospel of the world made right through Jesus, us brought back into relationship with Him, shining brighter, in the darkness of Genesis chapter 3, is it possible? you recognize those questions? Is God good? Does He tell the truth? Is He trustworthy? Will we believe His Word and live in light of that today? Or we're not? Temptation did not end in Genesis 3. Let me just conclude with this. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is reflecting on where these verses take us. He says this, So I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 3 is not the end of the story there is cause for us to rejoice. The promise of the gospel offered to us, to you. Will we listen to it even today? Will we listen to it again even today? Let's pray. Father, we do pray in the midst of a, of a passage filled with such sadness and gut-wrenching tragedy that explains so much of our own struggle with sin, the brokenness of the world that we see around us. Yet, Father, You did not end the story there. You gave us a promise, and we see its fulfillment in Jesus, that You would not let that be the last word of the story. You would not let it end there, but You came after us. We find that in Jesus, You have defeated death. That enemy that entered in in Genesis 3 and has plagued us ever since. That we, even though we would now taste physical death, we will not taste ultimate spiritual death. That even as Paul promised us here, you, because of Jesus, will raise us from the dead imperishable to be in your presence forever. A presence, your presence given to us, relationship with you restored. Restored now, but restored then in all its glory. We look to you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.